If we think about thinking, most of us, most of the time, think in pictures. So I wonder what picture of Joshua you had in your head as you heard those verses from the book read. And when you saw, if you looked, that you were coming to hear a sermon on meditation, I wonder what picture of meditation was in your mind as we announced the theme. One of my daughters, I won't tell you which one, has taken some delight in kind of going, um, every time I've mentioned this evening's sermon over the week. And no, maybe that is the image of meditation that you have in your head. Some subcontinental guru in the lotus position chanting while he, it's probably a he, seeks enlightenment. And if that is the image that's somewhere in our heads, then we do need to name and address it because that's not going to be one of our Christian habits of the heart. And we could be put off the whole idea because somewhere we've got this, this false picture taking us away from something that is spoken of. We've heard it twice in Psalm 119 and in Joshua 1. Meditation is spoken of in Scripture. Maybe, however, you're a bit more trendy than this. You're not thinking about this sort of stuff, but um, about colouring books and mindfulness and stones piled on top of each other. It's a huge craze at the moment with it apparently some real science behind it. Being mindful is being present in the moment, not going over the past, not anticipating the future, but fully experiencing the now. And maybe somehow this is just a kind of demythologized version of what we've just been looking at of transcendental meditation, but apparently practicing this stuff, doing the exercises, maybe not coloring in the coloring books, that's um, perhaps not quite there, but has genuine health and psychological benefits for us. Or so many people want to tell us, I, uh, some of you know I took a, a management role at the university in, last summer and one of the things they gave to help me in the role was a, a series of sessions with a life coach. Um, I was not expecting this. Um, and they said, we've got a coach. And I was thinking, what do I need a bus for? Um, but, um, but, but kind of caught up. Um, but, um, and uh, she's... she's She's delightful and she's perceptive and every six weeks or so we get together and talk about one thing or another and she's hugely into this mindfulness stuff. It's entirely secular for her, a practice of, of training your brain to be more resilient. No, no religious overtones at all. Now, resilience, good health are, of course, good things which we should be encouraging each other towards. But if that's all that we mean by meditation, then I'm not sure we need to be giving it a sermon in this series on holy habits, kind of alongside diet or exercise. It's a generally good thing, but not something that's very specific to how we shape our lives of discipleship as we seek to follow our Lord Jesus. So not the Indian guru, not, not the contemporary psychologist. What, what, what do we mean by meditation? 
Well, let's, let's go back to Joshua. And again, I wonder what pictures in your head of Joshua when you hear the story. What do you see in your mind? Because this is just about the earliest hit on Google that had a copyright license that allowed me to display it. Um, but it, it kind of captures the sort of picture I, I realised I'd got in my head of Joshua and the sort of pictures that are in all our girls' old picture Bibles too, which may be why it's the picture I've got in my head. Joshua, young, strong, virile, a warrior beginning his leadership journey, bursting with potential and energy, but needing wisdom and counsel, a life coach, no doubt, as young leaders so often do. But that's, that's not Joshua as we find him in the Bible. He's in his 60s, certainly, probably in his 70s, in a day when people died young. He's probably bent with age, leaning on a stick for support, his sights fading as he gazes across the river to the promised land that God's speaking him about. Of course, he'd been young once. He'd been into the land once when he was young. Across that same river, one of the 12 spies that Moses had sent into the land of Canaan. And he and Caleb had come back. They'd seen the profitabilities, the riches, the good fields, the vines, the olive groves, the land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised them. They came back and he and Caleb painted pictures of abundance and prosperity and all of God's blessings. But there were 10 others who had gone with them into the land. Ten others who came back and and painted very different pictures. Maybe they'd seen the vines and the olive groves, but the pictures in their minds when they came back were of soldiers, big soldiers, and walled cities. And those stories got told, and those pictures got into other minds. And the people got frightened and said, no, we're not going where God wants to take us. And so for 40 years, they'd wandered in deserts since, waiting until God leads them back to the land they'd turn away from. And now of that entire generation, only Joshua and Caleb are left. Every other adult who'd been there that day has died in the desert Even Moses finally dies, and there's two of them, ancient relics, reminders of a past that others want to forget. And God calls Joshua, not in the prime of his life, but from retirement into leadership. And God gives him a pile of promises. We heard them all read. I'm not going to go over them. And then two instructions. The first is be strong and courageous in in our Bibles or in some of the older translations. Be bold, be strong. Why did we not sing this? (laughs) It gets repeated so often in these first chapters of Joshua that it gets almost boring. Joshua's own version of strong and stable leadership perhaps um, and when, I've looked in, when I looked in my files every time I've preached before on this passage be strong, be courageous was front and centre 
of what I found myself talking about. But there's another command. And actually the way it's set up, possibly the more important command, the one that that everything else centers around, in verses 7 and 8, put them on the screen. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or the left. Then you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Here's the meditation that we need to talk about. An old man taking on new leadership responsibilities, being told to keep his focus, his mind, his mouth, day and night fixed on the law of Moses. The focus of meditation here is not the allegedly sacred symbol Om, or the present moment that we're supposed to learn to dwell within, but the biblical text. The goal of meditation is not enlightenment, not psychological health, but obedience to God's commands. Joshua is commanded to meditate on Scripture so that he can obey it and so that he will have success In what he does, he will be the leader that God is calling him to be. He will be the one who finally, after the decades of delay, takes God's people into the land that God has prepared for them. Meditation here is about becoming drenched in scripture, saturated in God's word, filling our minds and lives with the biblical text. That's what we mean when we talk about meditation as a habit of the Christian heart, as part of the life of discipleship. How might we do it? How do we go about meditating on the text? Well, there's not necessarily a lot of clues here in Joshua. He's told to meditate on it day and night. Let me suggest three practices to you. Practices that have been widely used and found helpful by many, many Christians down the years that seem to me to fall into this pattern of of saturating ourselves with the Bible. A first would be spending time praying with the text, reading slowly and attentively, listening for God's voice, for God's word as we read. What is God saying to me through this text? What is God saying to me today through this text? and being moved from the text into prayer. It's a practice that can be very powerful as we see things in a familiar passage 
come alive to us, almost jump out in highlighter. Vivid yellow highlighter, proper highlighter. Judith started her exams this week. She's got piles and piles of revision notes with pastel-coloured highlighters, which is just missing the point, it seems to me. <laughs> Passages jump out at us bright and, sh- and, and suddenly, yes, I see something there. There's something new. God guiding our minds and speaking us, to us through the text. And then we can move in prayer and respond and in life and respond. And grow through our relationship with God through our practices of reading the Bible. A second is to picture ourselves. In the text, you'll recognise, I sus- <laughs> you'll recognise absolutely nothing because of the quality of the light. Um, if you squint very, very hard, you might recognise a very famous painting on the right there, um, Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son, painted at the end of his life. Um, many of you, I'm sure, will know Henri Nouwen's book about um, this painting and, and, and reading it in all sorts of interesting ways. The painting on the left um, is also by Rembrandt, painted much earlier in his life, is entitled um, The Prodigal Son in the Brothel um, and is a self-portrait. Rembrandt painted himself into the image, enjoying the dissolute life of the son in the far country. And then there are hints, it's not certain, But there are certainly hints, if you look for them, in the later painting, painted at the end of his life, of the prodigal son being welcomed back into the embrace of the father, that Rembrandt's painting himself into that part of the story too. Most of us, when we think, think in pictures. And a a powerful way of praying particularly perhaps these gospel stories, can be to to visualise them, to imagine them, to meditate on them like that, and to be there in the crowd and notice what we feel and hear. Some of you will know that there's a traditional practice of spiritual exercises that are all based around this way of praying um, developed by the, um, the Catholic Jesuit leader Ignatius Loyola um, but he learnt his theology from John Meyer who was um, principal of St. Salvator's College in St. Andrews so it can't be all bad <laughs> but using our imagination not of course to put things in the text that aren't there but to become alive to what is there, to see and to hear and to know and to feel. Rembrandt makes the story of the prodigal son his own in two powerful paintings. I was there. That was me living the empty pleasures in the far country. But I was there. That was me 
knowing the Father's embrace when I returned home. A third way of meditating, perhaps picking up more directly on our passage here, where the emphasis is on just how continuous Joshua's engagement with this text will be. Keep the book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night. Taking a verse of a text that we've read of a morning or heard of a Sunday into the rest of the day or the rest of the week with us. And at those idle moments when you stand briefly in a queue or find yourself five minutes early for an appointment instead of crushing candy or catapulting angry birds or catching up on Twitter going back to that text so that it becomes your constant companion again and again, hearing it in different contexts, tasting it in different places. Make it, put it on the lock screen of your phone so that when you pull your phone out, it's the first thing you see. Make it something that lives with you again and again through those moments each day. The old Baptist house building on Southampton Row in London has this statue of John Bunyan, um, which is slightly dodgy because his Baptist credentials aren't exactly perfect, but uh, (laughs) he's famous enough that we claim him. Um, Spurgeon, whose Baptist credentials are rather better and who also had a statue there, (laughs) once said of Bunyan, Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood runs bibline. Prick him anywhere. His blood runs bibline. What is this holy habit of meditation going to be about? It's going to be about finding space and time in our lives, day by day, or many times a day perhaps, to make our blood more bibline. to become drenched and saturated in God's word so that instinctively we react in ways that are in accord with God's calling on our lives. We respond in ways that are shaped and informed by the scriptures. To meditate on God's word is just to get it deep down inside of us. There's lots of ways of doing that. I've mentioned three just because ten would have taken too long. <laughs> lots of ways of doing that. And some will work for some of us and others will work for others. But to become people whose lives and attitudes and minds and reactions are bibline, are shaped, informed, suffused 
with scripture is what we are trying to do when we meditate on God's word.